Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, What You See is What You Get, Nyaya on Perception. As we've remarked before, good philosophers should always define their terms, and the authors of the foundational texts of Nyaya were nothing if not good philosophers. So Gautama, in his Nyaya Sutra, does pause to explain key terms in his theory. This feature of the text was highlighted by Vatsyayana. Like other commentators, he wants to bring out the underlying logic and structure in the sutras, which at first glance may look like nothing more than a list of unconnected or vaguely connected aphorisms. So, he introduces a distinction between three kinds of remarks made by Gautama, naming sutras, which introduce a topic or concept for analysis, defining sutras, which offer a definition of the concept in question, and critical sutras, which examine and evaluate the adequacy of the proposed definition. Of course, if the Nyayakas were really good philosophers, they would also tell us what they mean by giving a definition. And guess what? They were really good philosophers. So they tell us that a sound definition provides some property that is coextensive with the concept to be defined. We should steer a middle course between overly narrow and overly wide definitions. Showing that the proposed definition suffers from neither flaw is the purpose of the critical sutras. Take, for instance, their favorite example, the cow. We shouldn't define cow as something with a tawny color, because not all cows are tawny. Some are black and white. So this definition fails because of what is called undercoverage. We shouldn't overreact to this by randomly naming some broad property that will include all cows. If we say that a cow is something having horns, we will commit the opposite error of overcoverage, since of course other things have horns, like reindeer and the James Brown band. A better definition would be, a cow is something with a dewlap, since all cows and only cows have a dewlap. That's the loose skin that hangs from the cow's neck. Notice that Nyaya is settling for a fairly modest achievement here. Their definition does not reveal the essence or nature of cows, but just gives us a reliable way of picking out cows from all other things. This is also what Gautama seeks to do with his definition of perception, pratyaksha. It comes early on in the Nyaya Sutra, and of course in one of the aphorisms that Vatsyayana designates as a defining sutra. Here it is. A perceptual experience is that which is produced from contact between sense faculty and object, is a non-verbal awareness, does not deviate or err from its object, and is definite in character. And you have to say this is pretty impressive. If you asked your friends over dinner what perception is, they'd probably say something like, you know, seeing stuff. Gautama has clearly put more thought into it, giving us a group of features that must all be satisfied before we can say that an experience counts as a perception. He may have had polemical reasons for doing so. Gautama's historical influences are a matter of speculation, but it is reasonably certain that he's responding here to early Buddhist discussions of perception. Early Buddhists tended to view perception as a kind of direct sensory acquaintance with sensible data, like colors, sounds, and smells. 
That doesn't sound much more advanced than what your friends came up with at dinner, but as Buddhist skeptics like to point out, appearances can be deceiving. The Buddhists gave perception a special place in their worldview. Remember that, for them, suffering is caused by attachment to false ideas and constructs of the mind, such as the idea of a permanent self, or of essences that would belong to everyday objects. Freedom from suffering means letting go of such attachments. This will leave us with nothing but simple perceptions, the remaining residue of mental life. This is why the Buddhist definition stresses the immediacy of our sense experiences. This is perception untainted by false theoretical postulates. For all its complexity, the Nyaya definition has a different, and in a way, more humble objective, it just seeks to articulate our ordinary, common-sense notion of what constitutes a perceptual awareness. With this in mind, let's have a look at the four parts of Gautama's definition. The first is that there must be a direct sensory connection, or causal link, between the object of perception and the perceiver. This makes good sense in ordinary cases of perception, as when you see a cow in a field. But what about seeing something in a mirror, through binoculars or through a video camera? We would normally call these cases of perceptual experience, but do they really bring us into contact with the sense object, or only with an image of the object? We might try to save the definition by allowing for indirect contact through images and other representations to account for the mediation of mirrors, binoculars, and so on, but it seems hard to believe that perceiving a representation of something is the same as perceiving that thing. Do I really see my sister when I look at a picture of her? And do you really hear her when I tell you what she said? It seems clear that Gautama has not said enough to explain the sort of connection involved in perception but the commentators rise to the challenge. In his super-commentary on Vatsyayana, Udyotakara distinguishes six types of perceptual connection. First of all, there is direct conjunction as between me and a pot when I see it on the stovetop. Second, there is perceiving something that inheres in an object like my seeing the blue color of the pot. Third, there is what inheres in something that inheres, for instance, perceiving the universal property of blueness that resides in the pot's blue color. Fourth and fifth, I can also perceive that such properties and that such universals inhere in something. So this is the subtle difference between seeing the blue of the pot and seeing that the property blue or the universal blueness is present in the pot. Sixth and finally, there is the connection between an object and its absence, as when I see that there is no pot in the kitchen. Probably the giraffe took it when we threw her out after the last episode. Notice that for Udyotakara, we perceive not just the objects themselves, but also their qualities, properties, and motions. This is crucial from the Nyaya point of view. Unlike the Buddhists, they want to insist that blueness is objectively out there in the world, and so I should be able to perceive it. But universal abstract blueness cannot make me see blue, or anything else for that matter. For that to happen, blueness must inhere in some particular object like the pot. My sense faculty is, as he puts it, directly conjoined with the object in which the universal inheres. Universals by their very nature are located in particulars, but I cannot see or hear them directly. I have to do so by perceiving the particulars in which they occur. While this is perhaps controversial, the most surprising and provocative kind of perception mentioned by Udyotakara is the last one. 
he claims that I can perceive absences. This is part of a development within Nyaya. As the school evolves, they become increasingly known for their wholesale commitment to the reality of negative entities. Consider the classic cinematic study of not showing up, the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. When Ferris's teacher sweeps his gaze across a room, he doesn't just see an empty chair where Ferris would normally sit, he sees that Ferris Bueller is not there, that is, sees the absence of Ferris Bueller. But is this really plausible? If the teacher said, I see that Ferris isn't here, wouldn't this just be a figure of speech? The later Buddhist Dhammakirti would say that in such a case we do not perceive absence but rather make an inference from a lack of perception. The teacher implicitly makes a sort of deduction. He does not perceive Ferris Bueller. If Ferris were here, the teacher would see him. Therefore, Ferris is not here and is presumably skipping school. Again. Ujyo Takara, however, is convinced that we really do sometimes perceive an absence. In fact, absences can inhere in objects just as colors do. The absence of Ferris is a qualifying property that resides in the chair where he normally sits. Already Gautama proposed an example that could help make this claim more plausible. Suppose I am told to get some cloths from a pile of fabric and to take the ones that are not marked. What I'm looking for is the absence of a mark on the cloth. When I see this absence, I know I should take the cloth. The issue may seem pedantic, yet it brings out a deep disagreement between the Nyaya and Buddhist epistemologies. The Nyayikas are determined to resist Buddhist attempts to expose the experienced world as one of conceptual fabrication. For Nyaya, what you see is, for the most part, what you get. Experience really does put the world in view. Another aspect of this debate concerned the question of whether the senses connect with their objects in the more literal sense of being somehow physically connected to them. Nyaya claims that when I see something, my vision reaches out to the visible object. True to form, the Buddhists offer a battery of objections to this idea, which are rebutted by the Nyayikas. One of the Buddhist objections is that if vision really reached out to things, it would see closer things before seeing things that are further away. You would first be aware that your sight contacts a giraffe silhouetted against the full moon, and only thereafter be aware of seeing the moon. The Nyaya response is that vision does contact more distant things slightly later, but the speed at which this happens is such that we are unaware of the lapse in time. They offer a lovely analogy. When I thrust a knife through a pile of flower petals, I am not aware of cutting through each petal separately, even though the knife must indeed pass through them one after another. Let's finally move on now to the second clause of Gautama's definition of perception, which tells us that perceptual experience is non-verbal. This may seem to be a concession to the Buddhist claim that we should strip away conceptual generalizations from perceptual experience, but in fact the point is just the opposite. Gautama wants to say that, although I can indeed perceive something without classifying it in terms of some concept, I can also deploy concepts to enrich my perceptual experience. In other words, it is possible to have a mere sensory connection with an object without having the capacity to recognize what sort of object is being encountered. Your average ancient Indian would have been very familiar with cows, but entirely unfamiliar with giraffes. If you put a giraffe in front of an ancient Indian, she would be able to see it, 
but would have no concept or word for what she was seeing. The Buddhist account of perception makes it sound as if all perception were like this. Gautama disagrees. Such unvarnished encounters with the world are not even the typical case. Those of us lucky enough to have familiarity with giraffes can perceive them as giraffes, and perceive that a given object is a giraffe. Later, Nayayakas will call the first kind of perceiving conception-free, and the second one conception-loaded. The point of this part of Gautama's definition is thus to admit that conception-free perception is possible, but he certainly does not want to concede to the Buddhist that all perceptual experience is non-verbal or non-conceptual. His understanding of human experience is expansive, whereas the Buddhist's is reductive. The third clause of the definition is perhaps the most philosophically problematic. Gautama says that perception is non-deviating. He presumably includes this clause to distinguish genuine perceptual experience from illusions, hallucinations, and other types of perceptual error. A genuine perceptual experience must convey the truth of things. In a sense, this is just what we'd expect from Gautama, since he dignifies perception with the status of being a pramana, or means of knowing, and how could perception be a means of knowing if it were sometimes in error? Unfortunately, Gautama's claim seems bizarre. Surely we do frequently have erroneous episodes of perception. Of course, the Nyaya thinkers are aware of the problem, and worry about such illusions as seeing a piece of rope as a snake because it looks like a snake when coiled up in a corner. In this case, there is a sensory connection with an object, namely the rope. But we would not want to say that I perceive a snake, since thankfully there is no snake present. The whole point of perception is to provide us with knowledge of the world, and that is precisely what illusions fail to do. From this, Gautama concludes that illusions cannot be counted as instances of genuine perceptual experience. His stipulation that genuine perception is non-deviating, in other words, that it must convey knowledge, leads later Nyaya thinkers to develop a whole theory of cognitive error. In every perceptual experience, whether genuine or erroneous, there is something that is somehow in contact with the senses. In our example, this is the rope. Error occurs when I misapply a property to the thing in question. In this case, we wrongly apply the concept of a snake to the rope. Now, snakes are real, and so is the rope that I am in fact looking at. It's just that there is no snakehood present in the rope. A further advantage of this analysis is that it can explain our ability to, for instance, see that ice is cold or that a flower is fragrant. Our Nyaya commentators say that in a case like this, I am recalling features that I perceived previously. Once I touched ice and felt that it was cold, so now, when I encounter ice, I can just see that it has this feature without having to touch it. This is technically called presentation through revived memory. Cases like this can count as legitimate perceptions, with vision drawing on the deliverances of touch or smell by using memory. Of course, they can also give rise to illusions, like if I were to see glass as cold because it looks like ice. To explain all these phenomena, the Nyayakas are presupposing a distinction we drew earlier, between concept-laden and concept-free perception. Our earlier example contrasted seeing a giraffe as a giraffe, rather than just as an inexplicable object taking up what we might, if we weren't afraid of frightening the giraffe, describe as the lion's share of our field of vision. Something similar happens in the illusion case. I am seeing the rope as a snake, when in fact it doesn't have the property of snakehood. 
and that difference is enough to undermine my right to say that I'm having a genuine perception. So, it is in the application of a concept that the possibility of error creeps in. The brute perception of the object itself is always immune to error. On this theory, there are no outright misidentifications in which you think you see one object but actually see another, there are only misdescriptions of the things that you see. This is because you are always at least having a brute concept-free perception of the object in front of you, whether you take it to be a rope or a snake. This Nyaya theory has its advantages, but it struggles to explain illusory cases where there is actually no object being perceived. Hallucinations would fall under this category, but also less deviant cases like seeing the blue sky. The problem here isn't that the sky isn't really blue, it's that we aren't seeing the sky at all. The blue we see is just light refracted from the sun. For Gautama's theory of perception to work in this case, there would have to be a real external object, the sky, which the viewer contacts with her senses, and onto which she superimposes the concept of blueness. In cases like this, there is perception without any object that can be the bearer of any property, whether truly or falsely ascribed. Taking a cue from the snake he keeps seeing in the corner, the Nyayaka might try to slither out of this by saying that the perceiver superimposes the property of blueness onto empty space. In other words, empty space would be the perceptual object, but this does not look terribly plausible. Finally, let's have a look at the fourth of Gautama's conditions, that perceptual experience must be of definite character. According to Vatsyayana, Gautama has in mind here cases in which, although I am in sensory contact with a certain object, I cannot tell what sort of object it is. This would include the example we discussed last time, in which I see something at a distance and am uncertain whether it is a wooden post or a person. Let's suppose it is in fact a person. Can I then say that I am perceiving the person? Gautama says no. Genuine perceptual experiences must leave no room for doubt. The mere possibility that what I am seeing is a wooden post prevents me from having a real perception and prevents the experience from being a pramana, a source of knowledge. Again, this is consistent with Gautama's earlier claim that perception may be non-verbal or concept-free. That kind of rudimentary perceptual experience is not infected by doubt, since it involves seeing the object out there neither as a person, nor as a wooden post, nor as anything else. As we saw in our initial look at Nyaya, this is a tradition devoted to the art of debate, as much as to the sources of knowledge. And debate is never far below the surface, even when Gautama is giving us what may look like a straightforward definition. His treatment of perception is directed against the Buddhists, in ways brought out and made explicit by the commentators. At some places in the Nyaya Sutra, Gautama engages with opponents more openly, as when he considers a probably Buddhist argument to the effect that all our perceptual claims are really disguised inferences. When I look at an object, I never see the whole thing, but only the part that is facing me, the near surface of the body of a giraffe, say. So, when I say that I perceive the giraffe, what I really mean is that, having seen the part of the giraffe that is facing me, I infer that there is a whole giraffe. Again, this may seem like mere pedantry, it's not as if there are front halves of giraffes running around without whole giraffes connected to them. Besides, as Gautama points out, the argument seems to concede that I can perceive something without making an inference, I can perceive the part of the giraffe that is facing me. 
But as with the giraffe, there is more going on here than meets the eye. Remember that Buddhists deny that whole entities exist. There are only collections of parts, a point made in that famous passage from the Melinda Panya in which the Buddhist sage Nagasena argued that a whole chariot is really just a collection of parts. Ultimately, what the Buddhists are driving towards here is their conception of persons as mere collections of mental and physical processes, which they call skandhas. In this context, when Gautama insists that we do perceive a whole giraffe, just as common sense would have it, he is making a controversial philosophical thesis. And he has the metaphysics to back up that thesis. Just as a universal like blueness is present in a giraffe that has fallen into a very large pot of blue paint, so the whole giraffe is present in, or inheres in, each of the giraffe's parts. This means that we can perceive wholes in just the same way we perceive universals. We experience blue by perceiving the object that has blueness, and perceive a whole by perceiving whichever part makes itself available to our sense faculties. In this way, Gautama manages to fend off the Buddhist claim that all perception of objects involves inference. But this is, of course, not to say that Gautama underrates the role of inference in acquiring knowledge. To the contrary, he makes inference another pramana alongside perception, and gives us a whole theory of how inferences work. And, as with perceptual illusions, he also has plenty to say about what is happening when inferences go wrong. You can't go wrong by joining us to hear all about it next time on the History of Philosophy in India. Allah,